Hello, my name is Tamar Bensby, and you're listening to Anything But Traditional. In line with our stories of perseverance is the story of Sari Singer. On June 11, 2003, Sari Singer was on a bus in Yerushalayim when an 18-year-old Palestinian terrorist boarded the bus and blew himself up. 17 people were killed, including all those seated and standing around her. And over 100 people were injured, including Sari. Sari was hospitalized for two weeks, and her life was never the same. Since the incident, she appeared on television stations, radio interviews, and has spoken before congressmen and senators. Sari does not know why she survived when all those around her were killed. She remembers the faces of those standing next to her. And because of those deaths, because she wanted to make meaning of her life, because she wanted to show the world how horrible terror, terrorist attacks, hate is, Sari became the founder and director of Strength to Strength which focuses on bringing together victims of terrorism from around the world and assisting them with the long-term psychological needs and treatment. It was a fascinating conversation with Sari Singer as we explored what she went through as she tells her story and as we talk about the war today, the hate today, and what we need to do about it how to stand up for ourselves, how to stand up against anti-Semitism, against terror in general. Strength to Strength doesn't just focus on anti-Semitism or the Jewish people, but all hate, all terror attacks. Listen to Sari and learn and be inspired and be committed to ending the hate, ending the atrocities, Ending the terror. Here is Sari's story. Hello, everybody. I'm here today with Sari Singer. Sari is the founder and director of Strength to Strength. Strength to Strength is an organization that focuses on bringing together victims of terrorism together from around the world and assisting with long-term psychological needs. Sari has addressed audiences through, throughout the United States, Canada, South America, Europe, and Israel, and continues to share her unique insight into the ongoing struggle for victims of terror in Israel and around the world. Sari is a victim of terror herself, and she hasn't just survived. She really has survived through everything that she has been through, and um, she's here today to tell her story. And so, Sarah, before we begin, I just want to ask you a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, what your family was like. Um, and yeah, if you can just talk a little bit about yourself before the terror attack. So, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I grew up I grew up in New Jersey in a town called Lakewood. Um, a pretty average childhood, nothing uh, too um, 
interesting. Uh, my father was and still is a politician, so he grew up very much in the spotlight of the community and um, being really aware of everything going on around us, as well as being being open and seeing a lot through other communities and other other areas of the world. Um, I think I want to start off with the fact that, you know, how my story begins, you know, uh, uh, on the morning of 9-11, uh, I worked um, a few blocks away from World Trade Center, and that morning I overslept, and I didn't hear my alarm clock go off. And when I turned on the television to see the weather outside, I saw the towers burning, and I immediately called my office, and they said that we were being evacuated. I heard screaming in the background, and they said, we don't know what happened. The building shook. Don't come down here. And for three days, I didn't leave my apartment. I was really impacted by what was going on and we couldn't go back to work. And a month later, when we were able to finally go back to the office, my subway stop was, had been completely destroyed. That was about a block and a half away from the towers. Um, and so we would have to get off about 12 blocks from, uh, from the office. And as I would walk, walk down the streets in Manhattan that first few days, as I would get closer to the office by about Wall Street, I would see tons of people just standing in line waiting for something. And so after four days of seeing all these people outside, I tapped somebody on the shoulder. And I said, what are you guys doing here? And he said to me, oh, we're here to take a picture of where the World Trade Center used to stand. And I just thought it's a month later. People are still looking for their loved ones. There's pictures and faces of people all downtown um, of people that didn't come home that day. And here these people are as if it's a tourist attraction, like it's the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. And I got really upset about this. And so I ended up speaking to a few friends, especially in Israel at the time. And in December of 2001, I quit my job and I moved to Israel and I started volunteering with organizations that were working with victims of terrorism. What were you working as before 9-11? So I was the director of recruitment for NCSY summer programs and our office is downtown. Oh, wow. So, and I led a summer program for NCSY for three summers. Um, before that. Cool. What program? I did three summers of, well, they changed names, but I did two summers of Israel summer experience and I did one summer of Jolt. Cool. Okay, fine. Cool. So you um, pivoted from that, ex- from working there through your 9-11 experience and then you decided to come to Israel. Yeah. And I began volunteering. I mean, I led a birthright trip on the way to Israel. That was the first thing that I did. Wow. Uh, and then I moved in with a friend of mine who had been living in Israel and who made Aliyah. And I began volunteering for a few organizations in Israel that worked directly with the families. I would help out at events. I heard stories. I would just be an ear to listen. Uh, and then... It, it, the story has like a lot of layers to it, but I was supposed to return to the States 10 months after I, I went to Israel. I ended up finding a job last minute. And so I would work from eight to two every day. And then I would go to volunteer and continue volunteering. What was your job? I was the administrator at Be'er Miriam, which is a high school program in, in Harnof. Uh, and so after... I would be volunteering in the afternoon still with the organizations and trying to do whatever I could. I approached the, you know, I approached this, this attitude of, I was there to listen. I was there to help out, but I didn't understand what the victims were going through. And I didn't ever think that I understood, but I felt like I was doing something productive and I was doing something that was really helping. And then a year and a half after living in Israel, 
Uh, I was on my way to meet a friend for dinner on June 11, 2003, when an 18-year-old um, Palestinian terrorist boarded my bus strapped with explosives. He had been uh, radicalized by Hamas. He was the eighth kid that year that had been radicalized through a Palestinian soccer team. And he boarded the very busy bus at Machane Yehuda at the end of the day when it was rush hour. Um, I had the prior prior to getting to Machane Yehuda at the previous bus stop, I was standing um, at the back door. And when we pulled up to Machane Yehuda, the last two seats on the right side of the bus in the front section opened up. And then normally I would have sit at the aisle seat because, as you know, people get on at Machane Yehuda with lots of packages. And I would, if somebody was getting on that was older, I'd want to get up quickly. But for some reason that day, I'm not sure why, I ended up moving in next to the window. I remember the girl who sat down next to me, her boyfriend who was standing by our seat. Uh, and I know that if I didn't take that window seat, I wouldn't be here today. Um, we, we started moving. I remember the bus started moving, but I remember looking outside for just a split second. There were tons of people outside trying to get on the bus. And the bus driver at some point had to kind of shut the doors because the bus was really packed. And I, Sounds like it's yeah, Very much so. And I <laughs> had at the time a very big cell phone. Uh, cell phones were much larger than they are today. And so I didn't want to hold my cell phone in my hand and my knapsack was on the floor. So as the bus started moving and we started leaving Machane Yehuda, I, I bent over and I started, I opened my knapsack. And as I dropped my phone in my bag and I was looking down into my bag, I felt this huge shockwave hit me. And I always tell people that the only way to explain the shockwave, it's like two pieces of metal that hit so hard against each other and vibrate back. That's what I remember my body feeling like. And I remember trying to lift my hands up to my face and my hands were being pulled down. And when the blast stopped, I couldn't open my left eye at all because something had hit it from the bus and it was already swollen shut. And my right eye, I could barely open just enough to see the roof of the bus had fallen in and the man's head in front of me and he wasn't moving. And for a split second after the blast, there's the silence. And it's not the silence that you hear outside in the summertime when you can hear like the crickets. It's literally the silence of death all around you. It's a split second, but it feels like so much longer. Where was the bus? Like in, right? It was coming up from my family. Who the-, the bus was at the top of Yafo when he detonated. So as it was at, it was at Davidka. So somebody actually had, had said to me that they saw the attack from the other side of the street, that they saw the bus jump four feet off the ground and come crashing down uh, from the blast. Um, And I, after that silence, my ears started ringing and I started screaming really loud. And luckily I was screaming because somebody heard me and I came running toward, and they came running towards the bus and they told me I need to get out. I said, I couldn't. He said, put your feet up on the bar, which I thought was the window of the bus, but it was the bottom of the bus that had blown out from the impact of the blast. And they brought me to the side of the road where an old woman waited with me until the ambulance came. And I thought, she's not the police. She's not Magandavita Dome. She's here waiting for help with me, you know, as if she were a family member of mine. And I thought that in this time where it was so difficult and the most horrific thing I'd ever been through where I had no family around me, I really had all this family that I didn't know existed. For me, the experience was very, very fast. For some victims, it feels like forever until help is going to arrive. I was immediately taken into Hadassah and Karim. Uh, 
They said that it was lucky I was screaming because a small fire had broken out in the middle of the front section of the bus and they weren't sure who was alive and who was just unconscious. So the fact that I was screaming was able for them to get me out of the bus pretty quickly. When I arrived at Hadassah, I was assessed by um, the head trauma uh, surgeon, which was Dr. Avi Rifkin, who I'm today still in touch with. And I was considered what was called Kal, which is lightly injured for Israel standards. I always say that for American standards, it definitely would not be. But in Israel, if you're not missing a limb, you're considered Kal, um, which is lightly injured. I was the last. Which is so crazy. It's crazy to think that lightly injured depends on if you're missing a limb or not. Um, yeah. This week, um, one of my. One of my sister's um, friends was injured at war, um, and it, I, she said he's she's like yeah he's lately injured. So I'm like okay like what does that mean like a cut a bruise a, what does that mean? And she goes yeah he's in the hospital. I'm like it's not lately injured. What what are you talking yeah, about? It's a different mindset. That's the truth in terms of you know emergency and urgency of care. And I was the last person that evening to go into surgery of the seriously wounded. I had um, shrapnel that went through my left shoulder, breaking my clavicle bone. Both my eardrums were blown from the impact of the blast. My hair was burned. My face was burned and bruised. I have shrapnel in my mouth that's inoperable. And that's lucky because on that day, over 100 of us were injured and 17 innocent people were killed, including everyone that was seated and standing around me. So I know that if I didn't take that window seat, I wouldn't be here because the girl next to me didn't survive. Her boyfriend didn't. The rose in front of me didn't survive. They approximated the terrorist was standing two people away from where I was seated, which would mean that he was next to the boyfriend. Um, wow. And so I came out of surgery that that night that. I went into surgery around 11.30 at night. I came out around 2.30 in the morning. And the next morning, I ended up doing a press conference with 30 international television and, and radio stations um, before my family arrived from wow. the States. Um, so what in what enabled you to do that press conference? That's really intense to, like, come out and I mean, do a press conference. I think, first of all, uh, you know, I grew up in, in the political realm. I, I've watched my parents, my father interact and, and constantly be in the public eye. So I'm not really sure how anyone does any type of press conference, but I think that for me, it was really important to make sure that I was sharing my story uh, for people to understand outside of Israel. Everybody in Israel understands what goes on, especially during that time of the second intifada, you know, everybody understood what was going on. I think it was very hard for people outside of Israel to understand the complexity and the impact of these terrorist attacks that were happening on a weekly basis in Israel. And for my attack, it was one of the largest bus bombings in, during the second intifada. And that year, it was one of the largest attacks that had occurred at that point, um, which was June 2003. Wow, that's, that's really intense. Um, that was after the Sabaro attack. Correct. Sabaro's was August 2001. Um, August 9th, 2001. I actually was in Israel at the time, but not there. Uh, and had uh, my high school principal was actually in Sparrows um, in the attack and survived. And his, uh, his. You're Benny Friedman? No, Benny Friedman was not my principal. Howard Green um, was my principal. And his, his niece was the one that was actually in the coma for 22 years and, and just passed away um, of her injuries this past summer. 
Um, so I knew people that were in there and, uh, and felt very connected to what had happened. Um, but at the time, you know, it definitely was, it was a, that was the year before um, I even went to Israel. That was right before 9-11. Wow. So you, it's very interesting because you went through 9-11 and then you went through this terror attack. And um, I, I experienced 9-11, but I, I want to be clear. I'm not a survivor of 9-11. I wasn't downtown. I was in my apartment a hundred blocks away uh, when it happened. And I, my people that I worked with were there and friends and colleagues of mine were downtown at the time, but I don't consider myself having any sort of connection to 9-11 other than the fact that it, it pivoted me to make a decision of that. I, I needed to go somewhere that I couldn't stay in New York. And that led me to everything that happened from that point forward. Um, but Interesting. I, so I guess the bigger question isn't that you were in 9-11, but the, the question is, Right. So you saw the aftermath of 9-11. You saw this person taking a picture and you were like, what are you doing? And then you see in Israel, you know, how they're, you know, dealing with everything. And I'm curious to hear from your perspective, like how do the different countries relate to it? Well, I think that there's a solidarity between Israel and New York very much in that anyone who experienced or went through 9-11 understands just like the Israelis that have been through terrorism understand what happened on 9-11. Again, the scale of 9-11 at the time, the largest attack on U.S. soil of that magnitude, um, I think it, it, it is just something I, at that point I couldn't even comprehend considering everything going on currently in Israel right now. It's even more so that it's just not comprehensible for me to understand how these things happen and how and how there's so much evil in the world. But I think that there is that connection between our country, between, I don't say our countries, because I think there are pockets and areas in the U.S. that really understand terrorism, like Oklahoma City that experienced a terrorist attack, Boston, uh, you know, um, the Pulse nightclub in, in Orlando, um, San Bernardino. These are all, you know. Well, also uh, Las Vegas, because I just. Las Vegas Keep thinking a terrorist about attack, just so you know. Las Vegas was a mass shooting and there's a there's a, in this country there's a big difference and it's and it's designated. It's either designated a terrorist attack or it's designated um, a mass shooting. So anyone that I just named, those were designated terrorist attacks on US soil. Um, Las Vegas, um, um, any of this any of the mass shootings that have occurred in the US are, are mass shootings and they they fall under a different category. So we don't need I mean, the trauma is the same, but the but the the way that's categorized is very different. So they don't consider those terrorist attacks. It's interesting. I mean, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense coming from it's about the source of who they right, came from. Right. It's also what their motivation was. I just keep thinking from my like, I, I, I think because it was a rave, right, when all of this like began in Israel, I think so much of like you know, it, it reminds me of when, like, Las Vegas happened because it was, you know, also, like, a big party outside and a lot of people right, it was a dancing. It was a concert. It was one person who was shooting. Again, I, I, I'm very, I, I think that it's hard to I, compare and contrast those things because, you know, um, 
the U.S. just designates things very differently than than anywhere else in the world. Whereas anything here in in the in the U.S., perfect example, a gunman walks into a kosher supermarket in Paris, the hyper cachet, shoots a few people. It's a terrorist attack. Gunman walks into Jersey City, New Jersey, into a kosher supermarket, kills a few people, and it is a, a hate crime. So there's a lot, same thing. A gunman walks into, into New Zealand, into a mosque, kills people. It's a terrorist attack. Gunman walks into the Poway Chabad Synagogue in California, um, kills somebody. It's a hate crime. So the U.S. definitely designates things a little bit differently than, than anywhere else in the world. And that's a shame for that, but that's just, that's not within my scope or realm to even understand. But I think that when you talk about 9-11, when you talk about Boston, when you talk about Oklahoma City, when you talk about the Pulse nightclub, these are similarities that, that, that can be relatable in the sense of that the terrorism and the motivation behind it and the ideology that definitely is in line with, with Israel. Um, and, and what, what everyone goes what everyone goes through there, what everyone's been going through there for decades, because this is not something that happens once in a while. This has been decades of terrorism that have impacted Israelis that have been ongoing for a long time. And I think that um, there is that that understanding. But the difference in Israel between what goes on here and what goes on in Israel is the fact that there is this, first of all, this resilience in Israel that's very different than anywhere else in the world. I don't care what anybody else says. I, I, impact I've, I've connected and 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 really spent time with victims from many different countries who have been through all different types of terrorist attacks and there's something very different in israel in terms of that resilience of how is israeli society um survives and thrives from what these 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 horrific things that happened we we, we get knocked down and we and, and we get back up and that when there's a terrorist attack in israel within a day or two that area where the attack took place usually is completely back to normal as if nothing happened there so that life continues because that is what the importance is in israel that that we value and i say we because you know when you're in a terrorist attack in israel you can become israeli that's what they tell you i have a two dots a hood number for all my medical stuff but i did, i hadn't made aliyah but i still become like an israeli citizen and my all my medical stuff is taken care of and there is nowhere in the world although it is changing a little bit there is nowhere else in the world that when you are in a terrorist attack that the country where you're and that attack takes care of you completely. And that's what happened to me in Israel. Israel took care of me as if I were their own. And there is this idea of life is is the most important thing. It's sacred. It, it's valued. And we need to move forward with life and make sure that we're living the best we can despite what's happening. And I think that's something very special about the people of Israel that people don't always realize that there is this 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 level there that's different than anywhere else in the world, that there is an understanding, there is a connection, there is that resilience and that strength that makes Israel just completely get back up, even though things are going on and be able to move forward and to build and to rebuild despite the horrific things that have happened. 100%, 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's probably like, you know, press conference right after, you know, getting up, it, it's it's crazy, but yeah, that's like also Israel. Like, of course, there would be a press conference right after because people want to hear, people want to, you know, and then people want to keep going and, and 
Um, I feel like sometimes there's no time to mourn um, in Israel. Um, and I think that's definitely a hardship, especially right now. You know, I think right now, like yesterday, we woke up to the news of, I think it was seven, nine. Now it's like 17. Right. I, I, when I heard the news, it was 16 soldiers at that time. Um, but probably yeah. when you guys woke up, it was, it was, uh, it was my, a different number at that point. Yeah, I believe it was seven when we woke up. And then well, throughout the day, there's, you know, and now today there's more. And it, it, it's, it's like every day. So it's, it's so painful. And yet the country kind of feels in a way that, like, it doesn't have a sense, you know, a time to mourn. And we just have to keep going and keep giving and keep being there. And, you know, right now there's so much, after, right now there's so much unity in Israel. Um but it's also not focused on necessarily those who were killed, even though the shiva houses and the funerals are packed. But it's also in terms of people that are still on the front lines that we want to make sure that they, you know, that the morale is kept high. And I think that that's something in Israel that's very strong, that the morale is always kind of kept high because we don't really have a choice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So after the press conference, um, can you continue, like, sure. what happened? Um, so I didn't find out about the people around me that were killed until about four days later uh, when my room was actually empty and I asked the nurse to turn on my television so I was able to see the faces on the news of the people that I remembered at the bus stop. Uh, I ended up staying in Israel. I was I was in Hadassah for about two weeks, almost two weeks, and then I stayed on an extra five or six days. I didn't want to be afraid to go back, so my family left, and I was allowed out for about an hour a day. A nurse would come to my apartment and help me with changing my bandages and showering and all the things that I need to do. And uh, one day I went out to for lunch with friends. Another day I went to the mall. Uh, and the last day before I returned to the States, I walked with a friend of mine um, from King George up to Yafo to where the attack took place. Again, it was weeks later. You never thought that anything happened there. Um, it was, the only thing you knew was that I saw some some old flowers and some, some glasses that probably had candles in them that people had lit. And um, you know, we talked about what happened, said some to Hillim, and then that night I boarded a flight back to the States. Uh, I spent the summer recuperating. Well, can I ask you, um, what made you decide to go back? Like, how did you decide to stay in Israel or go back to the States? Was that a hard decision for you? Like, I don't think at it, that time? I don't think I remember what the decision was. I think it was an automatic that I was going back to the States for the summer to recuperate, um, to be with family. But uh, I came back to Israel in September. So I was, I was in the States for, for July and, and August and then boarded a flight back to Israel in September. Uh, unfortunately, during that year, um, I, I, Bituach Lumi was on strike for about nine months. And a lot of my medical stuff wasn't, wasn't being able to be facilitated. So eventually, in, in about 10 months later, uh, I took a flight back to the States to deal with some ongoing medical issues. And then when I got back here, I was, you know, working and, and sort of speaking out about what I had been through. I started speaking on college campuses and then seeing what was going on in Israel, but also connecting with victims from other terrorist attacks. Eventually, um, 
I established my nonprofit, Strength to Strength, where we bring victims of terrorism together globally to share their experiences and to help each other heal and move forward with the idea that we understand what each other have been through and who better to help a victim, another victim, you know, get through it than somebody else who's already been through it. So we work with organizations that are already established on the ground in 15 different countries. And through them, we partner to run weekend retreats, um, different programs, anniversary ceremony events, um, anything and everything that we can help. We do Zoom now because we pivoted during COVID with that uh, to all Zoom meetings. So we still keep up our Zoom meetings to pe for people to be connected. And we really are offering resources, provisions, and just that peer-to-peer -peer support which people are needing. Uh, and I feel very very blessed that I'm able to do the work that I do, that I'm able to connect with so many victims from all different walks of life, all civilian victims that either lost family members, were injured themselves, uh, family members that were injured and first responders. And I, I believe that there's no rhyme or reason why I survived that day and while the people why the people around me didn't, except for the work that I'm doing. And I always say that I had no control over what happened to me that day. The only control I have is how I live my life going forward. And I want to make sure I live that life showing love and kindness instead of the hate that that day was all about. And that really is what strength to strength is. That's showing that hate hate does not win, that, you know, that there's light over darkness and that the best way for us as victims to combat the hate that we've experienced is to come together and make sure that we're living our lives and moving forward, that terrorism isn't destroying our future. And that's really what we're all about is making sure that people feel supported, that they have a connection with somebody and that they're not alone. Wow. So on a daily basis, like what is your day-to-day -day look like in terms of the organization? So the organization's all volunteer driven. So there's no paid staff. Um, mostly it's survivor driven. I have a full-time job. I work at Turo University. Um, I'm the director of career services at the Lander College for Women. But my passion is the organization and that work because it's something that impacted my life in a very personal way. And I feel like Israel took care of me during the most horrific time in my life. This is my way to give back to others and to show what Israel did for me. Now I'm doing for other people in other countries around the world. And I always say that I have the worst situation that has ever happened to me, that through it, I've met the most incredible people all over the world that have now become part of my family. And it's amazing to know that I could be in different countries. And if I need something, there's somebody there that I can reach out to and I can connect with or I can help them or they can help me because we have this, we have this, um, this, we have this attack that impacted our lives, which bonds us forever. And I think that's something really, really special that through something so horrific, through so much hate, that the positive things and the good things about it are the interactions of the people that are connecting with each other, that crosses religious and cultural barriers to show that we may come from different places, but what we've been through is something similar and that we can take those similarities and help each other to become stronger and to be able to grow and develop from what we've been through in order to make sure that we're living our lives the best we can moving forward. Wow, that's unbelievable. So is there, you know, a specific person that has, you know, besides obviously the state of Israel and, you know, on a larger scale, but I'm saying, is there someone that has helped you in specific be able to live the life that you do today and, and be able to cope and move on, not move on, but 
like move forward? I mean, I think for me, and I just had my 20th anniversary of my attack and I was in Israel for it. This was the first year since the attack that I was in Israel on the actual date. Um, and I, I, was that on purpose? Yeah, it was on purpose in the morning. Um, in the morning I was with my mom. And so in the morning we went to the hotel and we went to the old city and then we went to Hadassah and I sponsored a lunch to thank the doctors and nurses that took care of me and saved my life. And they, are they still there? Those specific doctors Not and all of them, but a few of them are. Yeah. And I'm standing wow. every time I go back, I usually visit the hospital and thank them. So I'm, I'm pretty much in touch with a lot of people at the hospital still, but I wanted the luncheon to not only focus on me, but I wanted other victims whose lives were saved by Hadassah to also be able to join. So there were about eight victims um, that joined for lunch. Um, and we all shared our stories and, and how Hadassah was there for us. Uh, and then there was an actual victim who couldn't make it to lunch because he was in the ICU. He had just come out of surgery. Um, it was his 20th surgery from the attack that he survived over 20 years ago. And so a few of us were able to sneak in and go upstairs before the shift of the nurses changed to see him and just, you know, uh, visit him and make sure that he knew that we were thinking of him. And then that evening, I hosted a Sudas Hoda'a um, with friends and family. Um at the Botanical Garden in Jerusalem at Kafit, which was really beautiful. Um, and I think that for me, what's really been a strength for me throughout all this and is the support of my family and friends. I think I have a really incredible support system. I think that, um, and I think both in Israel and in the US, you know, I think my friends in Israel were just so incredible when everything happened, they stayed with me every day at the hospital. Friends stayed, slept over in the hospital at night with me because they didn't want me to be alone. Uh, people came in at all hours to visit. And I, I, I really, one of the, one of the people that I worked with, I remember her saying that it was kind of a little joke that my, my five of my friends who were at like, who are there all the time, especially in the beginning, she called them the lionesses because they were like protecting my door to make sure that people weren't coming in that shouldn't be coming in. And I think that that just goes to the the fact of, you know, how incredible the support system I had that these people, these friends of mine who I, I still, I'm still close with today, they were there for me. Um, you know, it was, it was special that they were all able to come uh, to the Suda and to be there. Um, it was a special evening. It was more emotional than I thought it was going to be. Um, my mom even said that she couldn't believe, you know, how many people I actually knew in Israel because it was, I, we were about 65 people for dinner. And um, I had people from all different walks of life and all different parts of my life there um, that have been there for me since that day and really are those that I depend on in the country when I'm there and even when I'm here. Uh, so I think support system is the, it has been the key for me. And also talking about and sharing my story and making sure that I am sharing the story of others that can't share and, and being a voice for them. I think those things have been really important and have helped me to really get to where I am today from everything that I, I've experienced and been through. Right. So you were in between Israel and America and Israel and America. Like, how did you decide long term, like where you were going to live? Like, I feel like it's so hard. It is. I mean, I think that, first of all, we're in a difficult time right now with everything going on. So I think that that heightens a lot of things. Um, I didn't think about where I was going to be or where I wasn't going to be. It was more of, you know, 
where is the best place for me to be able to do the work that I'm doing right now? And right for right now, that that place is here in the States. Um, do I eventually want to be in Israel? Absolutely. Um, and that process will happen at some point. But for right now, I think my purpose um, is to be doing the work of strength to strength and making sure that victims are taken care of the way I was taken care of. And I think the best place for me to do that is where I am. Um, I'm, my heart is always in Israel. It's always there. Um, you know, I visit as much as I can and I'm still stay in touch with as many people as I can, because it's a huge part of, of who I am as a person. And, it, and I think that for all of us as Jews, Israel, you know, it, it's our homeland. So no matter where we're living in the world, it, it, everything that's happening there impacts us and affects us um, on a larger scale. And I always say like, we as Jews live the way we do in the diaspora because of Israel, because we have the state of Israel, because we have an army to protect us that if God forbid anything happened, we have a place to go and, and, we, and we have a homeland. Um, but I think for right now, my work and the important things that I'm doing, it, it wouldn't be able to happen the same way if I was based in Israel. So for now, I sort of push aside that, that, um, you know, that dream of mine so that I can make sure that other victims are taken care of. Wow. That's incredible. You are doing tremendous work and I'm sure that you are so busy. I can't even believe that you have a full-time job uh, in addition to all of this. And I mean, I was reading the, you know, people that are part of your organization, um, strength to strength and it's amazing i mean you have so many people involved and you know people that it looks like from all walks of life and you know dr pelkovitz and uh, i mean i don't even know how these names but they look like a lot of doctors a lot of incredible um people that you have supporting you and your organization and it's incredible what you've built um and you've and this organization has been around for how many years now? So we were established in 2012. And uh, so, again, we, 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 we've grown a lot, unfortunately, because more organizations have, have been established with the ongoing threats of terrorism. So whereas, whereas in 2012, there was no organization in Belgium. Now there is one. Uh, so there, when we first started, there was one organization in Paris. Now there's three in France. Um, wow. you know, there, the numbers are growing, unfortunately, and the needs for victims globally are growing in terms of the long-term impact, whether it's physical or psychological. And so we focus on the psychological needs, but not through, um, mainstream therapy, so to speak, is more peer-to-peer support, although we do have trauma experts and therapists on our advisory board chairs is Dr. Pelkovitz. And then we've got a number of um, psychologists, trauma experts, uh, counterterrorism experts, uh, journalists, you name it, we have them involved. And those are the people that are helping us to guide um, some of the work that we're doing. But really, the impetus and the, the the direction that the organization goes in is really survivor driven. Our members, like our victims, whether they're bereaved family members, whether they're survivors or first responders, they are the ones that are involved in the programming that we're doing. They guide us in terms of ideas of things we could be doing going forward. And we really 
make sure that they feel like they're a part of this. This is not just an organization where you're a member and that's it. We're like one big family. And we really want people to feel that not only that they have someone that they can connect to that understands, but that they're never alone and that there's somebody here that's going to be there for them long term. Wow, that's incredible. So um, in, in terms of the events going on now, both in outside of Israel and it, you know, what happened inside of Israel and it's ongoing inside of Israel and outside of Israel. What is, I mean, I guess we'll break it down, you know, because it's in the entire world. I'm not going to ask you about the entire world in one sentence, but um, I guess outside of Israel, what do you feel like is going on? What do you feel? I mean, there's so many atrocities, so much anti-Semitism that we're seeing. I know that you don't only deal with it. Jewish, you only you don't only deal with no, Jewish, no, right? You don't only deal with Jewish uh, terror victims, but I mean, there are so many attacks. There's so many hate crimes. There's so much anti-Semitism. What are you doing? How are you feeling? What What are your thoughts about all that outside of Israel? I mean, listen, when, I, when October 7th happened, it shook not only the world, but I think it, every every victim, no matter if, especially those of us who are in tax in Israel, but I think within our um, organization, everyone you know, was checking in on people. People were, were wanting to see if everyone's okay, especially those of us that were connected to Israel. Um, I never in a million years would have thought that something even more horrific than my attack could happen. And this takes it to a whole other level. Um, the horrific uh, brutality and barbaric um, uh, murders that were committed by Hamas on October 7th um, are, are just, are just, there's no, there's no words to really say how that is, except for the fact that um, anyone that doesn't uh, see what happened that day and condemn it and acknowledge that Hamas is a terrorist organization um, really needs to check their moral compass. Uh these things happened. They were real. They weren't fabricated like people are talking about. And I find it really, uh, um, I find it offensive that people are questioning whether or not these atrocities happened, yet we didn't question what happened after 9-11. I don't question anything that happens after a terrorist attack. So I think that, um, Unfortunately, in the world, there are people that don't want to see the truth, that want to have their own narrative played out, and they don't really care about the victims themselves. Um, over 1,400 innocent people were murdered in Israel, and, and the, the over 200 hostages um, are the real victims in this. And I find it, again, horrific that people are not talking about this um, and not understanding what needs to be done um, to eradicate terrorism. And that's really, that's really to me the most important thing, that this doesn't happen to anybody else. And that, that unfortunately, there are thousands of Israelis that were impacted that day that were injured, that have now joined this club of victims of terrorism that none of us asked to join. And I think that 
I think on some level, every Israeli, I mean, obviously not on that big of a level, but I think on uh, on some level, every, every Israeli is affected, you know, we're Absolutely. all affected by everything. And I think that we're all affected by, you know, like October 7th. Obviously, it's not as a, you know, maybe some of us are not as directly, but even, you know, one step away, like, Correct. you know, um, I know somebody that was, I like, I know somebody that knows somebody that was, um, and I'm sure more than that, that was killed, yeah. um, murdered um, on October 7th. Um, and she was telling me the story. And um, yeah, like it's, you know, it's it's never too far away in Israel. You know, when, um, as we said, you know, when the Chayalim were killed yesterday and we found out that the Chayalim were killed yesterday and I was sitting at my friend's house and I'm like, how do we know this? person meaning i know for a fact that i am not that far away from one person i mean i was on instagram um looking at pictures when um i found out the horrific news that natanel young was murdered um and i was like I, I you know at first i didn't realize that i knew him and then i'm like oh i know him i know his brother i know his sister-in-law like it's never too far away. It's never too yeah. um, distant. No, absolutely. I think it's a big difference between America and Israel also in terms of like in America, like, you know, people are saying like, okay, like, yeah, that terrorist attack happened in Boston. I live in, you know, New York. Maybe I don't know somebody that was there, but here it's like they're all of our, we're only one connection away from somebody absolutely i mean also israel's israel's small israel's smaller than new jersey you know the united states is a lot bigger but yeah everyone knows somebody in israel everyone's connected if you don't know somebody you know somebody who knows somebody everybody's impacted by what's going on but in terms of the in terms of those that were directly impacted in terms of the injured there are thousands and thousands and thousands of injured that are that are you know going to need long term support that are and again the entire country is going to need long term support but I'm saying that the injured are going to need the physical and the psychological um, for sure support. and it's just you know it, it's unfortunately never ending and I think that um, that we all all of us that are impacted we just need to be there for those that need us be a support system for 100%. them and let them know that they're not alone and that others are there and others understand what they've been through so how i mean okay so we're talking about you know israel now but in terms of the anti-semitism right like the anti-semitism right now is on the rise it is crazy it is rampant it is bonkers like how do you what do we what do you think of the future for Jews outside of Israel? How are you know, how are you working to, you know, in terms of being a terror um I don't know if you would say a terror advocate. I mean, I think that again uh, there is unfortunately anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and anti-Israel are all the same thing to me. It, it's all about Jew hatred and 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 it's a problem. It's a huge problem right now going on, not only in the U.S. but around the world. And we see it in the news. We see the the we see the the violent protests. We see the you know the burning of the of the flags and and all this stuff. And it's really about Jew hatred at the end of the day. 
I don't know what the answer is to that. I don't, I know, I can only say that, you know, I'm trying to show the love and the kindness and not the hate. Um, that's not, that's not where I'm at right now. Um, I do believe that, you know, things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, I know a number of people that are, are looking into Aliyah and moving to Israel because of what's going on. Um, and I think that we as Americans, I can't speak for elsewhere in the world, but we as Americans need to take steps to protect ourselves and to protect our communities and protect our families at any cost. So on a personal and, you know, organizational level, what steps have, you know, in terms of both Israel and America, I'm sure that your workload, it's flooded you right now. So what we do at Strength to Strength is we don't, we're, we're not an organization that comes in immediately. We're not the emergency you know, we come in after the media fades, when when things die down and people are actually left to deal with the long-term impact of what they've been through. So we usually, when we usually um, connect with victims, it's usually about six months to a year after their attack. Now, that doesn't always happen that way. I've reached out to some of the Americans that, that survived just to check in to see if they need anything, if they want to talk, because I think that, you know, somebody who has grown up similarly to you will understand a little bit differently than somebody who didn't. Um, but we, we plan on, on, on doing everything like we've been doing, running our programs, running our retreats, having support, our peer mentors, um, anyone that is available. We also work with organizations on the ground in Israel. So they're the ones that are going to work with the families. And then through them, we will help and facilitate events and programs that they will join with us. So that's really how we how we really connect with our members is through the organizations that we're working with. And we they're our partners. We would not be able to do the work that we do without those organizations. And as I said, every country, you know, we work with organizations on the ground in the UK, in Northern Ireland, in Spain, in France, Algeria, Iraq, Israel, um, Argentina, Colombia, Uganda, Kenya, Belgium, Australia, and the United States. So we are working with organizations that are on the ground, really helping victims of terrorism to move forward. And through them, we also get to know that the victims are, you know, their stories are their stories that we don't have to check in to make sure that somebody was really there or not, that we actually can vet the people that are coming into our circle to make sure that we're protecting all of our members and all the victims that we currently work with. But we understand already I mean, our members in Israel that have been involved with us for years are already impacted by what's going on. So we will continue to be there to support them and be there for them when they need it. But we also know that there might be new people coming in that we will be there to support just as well, just as we have been before. Um, and again, we are we are psychological support. So we're not we're not monetary support for victims. So I think that there's a difference there. Immediately, there might be monetary needs, but the long term, it's the psychological and it's the connecting with somebody that's been through that same experience that can help you to get through it and help you be stronger and just guide you from what they've been through because they've had a little bit more experience than you. And I'm sure that you never fully move on. You just move forward. I say that you never get over what happened. It's how you cope with life moving forward. And everybody copes differently. You know, for me, I, I thank God I say it. My support system is really incredible. And they're the ones that keep me moving forward. Uh, but it's also the members of our organization that I interact with and that give me the strength that are there for me 
or check in. I got a phone call from a, a member of ours on uh, on Sunday, just checking in to see how I was doing and saying if I need anything that she's there, I can come to them if I need to go somewhere. So just that fact of hearing from somebody else who is far away, who just wants to check in and make sure you're okay. I think that's that's what we're all about. And that's the beauty of the organization is that we really are one extended family. You know, it's been 20 years, over 20 years since the horrific day. And what, you know, how has your life changed into who you are today? What is your, um, yeah, like what, you know, how do you feel that the whole event has changed you aside, obviously, from creating this incredible organization? Um, but what has, you know, impact, like how has it affected you personally? So again, I think that, you know, there's no way that something like this can't impact somebody's life in a major way. I don't think I ever thought that I would be speaking, that I would be in this in this realm that I'm in and being an advocate for victims, but it sort of was thrown on me. And, uh, you know, I, I feel that I am the voice for those 17 innocent people that didn't get to go home to their family members that day. And when I'm sharing my story, it's not just my story, it's their story and the thousands and thousands of Israelis that have been directly impacted by terrorism in the last 20 years and even more. And for victims of terrorism everywhere, because, you know, we don't it's very hard to understand what somebody has gone through after such a horrific attack. And I don't want anyone to understand what I've been through. But the only way that I saw going forward was that I had two options. I could either become the victim that the terrorists wanted and let the pain and the trauma that I experienced eat me up inside and have no life, or I could take that pain and do something with it. And that was the something. It was, it was uh, connecting with other victims. It was making sure that that I was a voice for anyone who needed, and then to build an organization of support for those people. And so, you know, that I think is 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 why I'm here. I think it's why I survived. I think there's no rhyme or reason why some people do and some people don't. And that everything I'm doing is really in memory of the innocent victims that didn't survive that day. Wow. So what is your message you know, there's so many messages here. There's so many important messages that you've been sharing with us. But I guess if you were to have one message that you wanted the world to know um, about terrorism, about, you know, as somebody that went through terrorism, as somebody that survived this tragic, horrible day, what is a message that you would give? I mean, it's hard because I want to preface that when whenever I'm saying something or I'm, I, I'm, it's also something to redirect it myself. I have to remind myself the things that need to be done as well. It's not just about telling somebody else what you should be doing. I have to also be doing those things. I think that the the message or the thing for me is that we need to do better. We need to be doing better in this world. Um, there's so much hate and there's so much violence and there's so much anti-Semitism and anti-Israel and anti-lots of things. And we just as the as the as the leaders and as the people that have the ability to make change to do something we need to do better for the next generation and i it, it is scary to see 
the next generation of leaders on these college campuses, what they're saying, what they're what they're doing, and how they're behaving. And it makes me worry for who's going to be leading this country in the future and what that looks like. So I just think that we all need to think about what we can do to make the world a better place, what we can do to make things better within our home, within our communities, within our schools, within our educational institutions. And we should never be afraid to be who we are and to take a stand for what we truly believe in. And I think that's the most important thing that we need to do right now. We're seeing that, you know, sort of happen and unfold right now, especially outside of Israel on college campuses, the hate that's being spewed, the fear of Jewish students on college campuses. And I think the fact that um, that we need to really um, reevaluate who's educating the next generation, what they're educating them about, and, and, and how we can change this, uh, this demographic that's happening of this hate that's really perpetuating all over campus. And really it's coming, not, it's coming from faculty, it's coming from students, and it's coming from a lack of a voice from the administration of these institutions in st- taking a stand against these horrible things. So I think that all of those things need to change. And the only way that's going to happen is if we do better. Um, and we need to. We need to not only for ourselves and for the, for the current generation, but for the future generations um, to make sure that these atrocities and these things that are happening now do not happen again. We need to put a stop to it. And we need to make sure that um, that we're doing everything we can to uh, combat hate and 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 uh, terrorism, and that includes, you know, really really condemning uh, what is happening in our in our educational institutions today. Wow! So, wow, Sari, thank you so so much for everything that you've shared today. Um, can you just you know share? Um, where people can find you if they want to reach out or if um, they, you know, know somebody that needs to reach out to you. Or if there's anyone who knows any victims of terrorism, somebody who survives, somebody who's a brief family member, first responder, they can definitely reach out to us. And if the people want to get involved in helping us and volunteering, we always need volunteers. Are your volunteers um, specifically people that have been through terrorist attacks? No, we've got lots of volunteers that just want, we have a whole young professionals division here in New York that, that run events and fundraisers and interact with our members and come to things and help out and volunteer. It's a, it, This isn't just about us who have been through it. It's really making sure that people understand what we've been through, even if you don't even if you haven't experienced it, that you understand from hearing it from us, what we've been through and that just being there to support us is enough. Um, and it's what victims really need, but people can find us on our website at stosglobal.org. Um, that's really the best way to reach out to strength to strength. Um, and we are on social media, we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram and at STOS global and or strength to strength. And people should just feel free to reach out if they want to get involved and engaged. We will put that on our, uh, you know, on our uh, notes, the show notes. Okay, great. Um, and I guess the last question while I have you here is, um, you know, I'm just thinking about all the people that have been affected since October 7th. It feels like it's been like decades. Um, for somebody that has been affected, what is your message for them in specific? You know, like, is there anything that you would want to share with them in specific? And whether it's a sibling that has lost a loved one or somebody that's it, it's themselves has been there or 
and had somebody, you know, right now fighting on the front lines. There's so many people that are deeply affected. I um, think that people just need to reach out for support and not be afraid to ask for help. Um, I think it's important to connect and to find people that have been through those similar experiences. There is no way after going through something like this that you're not going to be impacted um, by it and to not try and run away from it, but to really deal with it head on. And that means connecting with organizations that are local and organizations like ours that can help you and really just making sure that people know that they're not alone and that they they should reach out when needed. Um, the worst thing is to try and push it away and keep pushing it away and then something triggers it later on. So I really recommend for any victim to try and reach out for support and make sure that you have some sort of support system for yourself that's there to help you through whatever you're going through. Thank you so much, Sari. And um, definitely, you know, thank you. Just thank you for being here. It meant a lot to me and um, I'm sure that many, many have learned from this important conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Anything But Traditional. It was such a pleasure to have Sari Singer on to talk about her organization, Strength to Strength. It's crazy what she has been through, and it is amazing to see her resilience. As she shares at the end of the podcast, we're not alone. Nobody's alone. We have to work together. We have to make the world a better place. But we're not alone in that. It's a lofty task. It's a daunting task. A daunting task. But together, we will overcome. Together, we will win. Biyachad nasayach. I'm here for you. The Tales of Tamar community on Instagram is here for you. So head over there if you want to take part in the conversation. Anonymously, not anonymously. Messaging me answering the question box, however you want to share your thoughts on this episode, please do. Feel free to also leave a review on Apple Podcasts, a five-star review on Spotify, and make sure to take part in the conversation. It's truly a pleasure to hear your thoughts, hear your feedback, and with your help, this podcast is only going to grow, only going to flourish and only going to get better. Additionally, please note that there are sponsorships opportunities. There are ad opportunities. So if you are interested, please reach out. I'd love for, you know, to uh, for us to collaborate, for you to have a voice on this podcast, for me to share your important messages. Maybe you have a birthday. Maybe you have a yard site. There's a lot of different reasons why maybe you'd want to, you know, sponsor or dedicate this uh, podcast. So just reach out, let me know, and I look forward to speaking with you. Until next time. <laughs>